Good morning, one and all. Please turn with me for one last time to the book of Romans chapter 8. Today we are going to conclude our study of this chapter. As you're turning there, as you're finding your way there, I want to begin, however, by doing something completely different. Um, now that I've got your attention, I, I rarely, rarely address current affairs from the pulpit. Um, the reason is very simple. I, I believe God's agenda is set by his word, not the latest newspaper headline. Having said that, um, the Supreme Court decision this, this past week is of such magnitude that I believe it, it, it necessitates, it requires at least a comment, especially given the fact that at some point it is going to affect us as Christians. It is going to be brought to bear upon our lives in this country. And pastorally, I want to make sure you are, and I am, thinking through things biblically. Biblically. We can succumb to defeatism or the other extreme. We can fall into alarmism. I want you to avoid both. I want us to think biblically. And so I want to make six appeals to you. I've written these out as a letter addressed to you, uh, Grace Community Church. Six appeals. Number one, please, please understand that this decision was not the battle. The Supreme Court decision this past week was not the battle. It was a result of a battle. Since its inception, this country has been caught in a struggle between two opposing worldviews, a minority, and it has always been a minority, has held over here to a robust biblical worldview, God-centered, and a minority over here has always held to an equally robust, enlightenment worldview, man-centered. Two minorities Opposite extremes, poles, a God-centered worldview, a man-centered worldview. For most of this country's history, the middle, the majority, has accepted the presuppositions espoused by the biblical worldview. The result has been a form of cultural Christianity. In the past few decades, the pendulum has swung. The middle, the majority, now accepts the presuppositions espoused by the Enlightenment worldview. We are now witnessing the result of this dramatic shift. So the Supreme Court decision was not the battle. It was simply a result, a consequence, a fruit of a battle. Please understand, that the root cause for this decision was total depravity. Make no mistake about it. The reason for this decision was the good old-fashioned biblical doctrine of total depravity. Sin corrupts us all. And sin affects our personal choices. Sin also affects social institutions, many in this country. Sin affects cultural traditions. Sin affects economic systems. Sin affects political structures. 
And sin even affects legal proceedings. Please understand that. Because conversely, please understand that this decision will not be remedied through political activism. This solution will not be remedied through political activism. Radical depravity necessitates a radical gospel and the proclamation of that gospel. Thirdly, please understand that this decision opens a Pandora's box. And we should weep because of this. We should weep because of this. As Christians, we love our neighbors. One of the ways we do this is by protecting them from all that is hurtful and harmful. This decision will hurt people. It will hurt people. It will devastate lives. This decision sanctions a sin that is self-destructive in its very nature. And this decision confirms that law in this country is now arbitrary. There is no authority higher than man. And so what was unimaginable 20 years ago is now law. And what is unimaginable today will potentially be law 20 years from now. And that is cause for weeping. Cause for weeping. Please understand that the landscape of evangelicalism is about to change. This decision will divide homes, Christian homes, Christian churches, and Christian institutions. We are about to discover that the church in this country is smaller than we thought. That merits repeating. We are about to discover that the church in this country is much smaller than we thought. Cultural Christianity is slowly dying. Its death toll is now ringing. While we might lament some of the losses associated with this death, I think our main response should be good riddance. I'll leave that one just suspended in the air. Please understand, fifthly, that all is not lost. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The parallels between our society and that of the Roman world centuries ago are striking. The church experienced its greatest expansion in the midst of the decaying collapsing Roman Empire. The kingdom of God is not tied to any earthly kingdom. It never was. It never will be. This decision has not affected our king. It has not changed his plan. It has not altered his rule. It has not thwarted his will. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And lastly, please understand that Christ alone is our hope. Christ alone is our hope. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And it is not a political party. It is not a political system. It is not the Supreme Court. It is a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. He alone is our hope.
our hope. And so I pray that will bring, I mean, I have not exhausted the subject by any stretch of the imagination, but I pray it at least give us a paradigm for thinking through these things biblically, for assessing them, evaluating them, moving forward, and never losing sight of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, you're going to discover that our text does speak to what I've just said and what has happened, transpired this past week. It does speak to it. And that will come out in due course. Follow along now as I read it for us. Again, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Paul's conclusion to this chapter. He commences the conclusion as we noted last Lord's Day with a question right there, outset of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Go back just a few verses, verse 28, and note with me what he expresses there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There we have a beautiful promise. Notice the object of the promise. We know that for those who love God. In other words, the promise is given exclusively to those who are born again. Notice the scope of the promise. We know that for all those who love God, all things, even bad things, which is what Paul has primarily in view, work together for good, all inclusive. That's the scope of the promise. And now notice the certainty of the promise right at the end of the 28th verse. For those who are called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called according to his purpose? Oh, he expresses it so eloquently in verses 29 and 30, focusing on five divine acts. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Hence Paul's question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? To this promise. Paul has four things to say. He draws out four implications. And he states each by way of a question. Here is implication number one. Given what I have said in verses 28, 29, and 30, implication number one, there is no opposition to God's power. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 31. Here's the question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Implication number two, 
There is no limitation to God's grace. Again, he states it by way of a question. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No limitation to the grace of God. Third implication is this. There is no alteration to God's justice. The question, part A and part B, brings us into verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34. Who is to condemn? And Paul makes it very clear in those two verses. No one can accuse us. No one can condemn us. There is therefore no alteration, no change when it comes to God's justice. And the fourth implication is this. There is no separation from God's love. The question right at the outset of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Four implications. What then shall we say to these things? This is what I will say in response to the promise of God put to us in verses 28, 29, and 30. Last Lord's Day, we covered implication number one and implication number two. And so you guessed it. Today we're going to pick up with number Three, there is no alteration to God's justice. Look at the questions again in verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who are the elect? Those whom he described in verses 29 and 30. Weeks ago when we were looking at God's act of foreknowing, I submitted to you that that is simply a synonym for what? Election. Paul himself now confirms it, doesn't he? He uses the word himself. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's his answer? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who, who will condemn? Who is to condemn then? Into verse 34. What's Paul's response? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. And so Christian, I'm speaking to believers. What do you do? What do you do when Satan tempts you, tempts you, tempts me? What do I do to think that God's acceptance of us is contingent upon us? God's acceptance of me right now is contingent upon what I do. How do I respond? What do I do when Satan brings to mind that catalog of sins that I've committed this past week? Worse than that, when he comes and he tempts me and he says, look, you're on your knees repenting of that sin. Let me just remind you, you repented of that just this past week. And here you go again. He brings these accusations. He brings this condemnation. How do we respond to that? You know how a lot of us respond to that? Well, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pray harder, longer, and read longer. I'm going to prove myself this time. Just you wait and see what I do for the Lord next week. You ever gone down that road? You know where it ends. Next week, where are you? You're on the knee, your knees repenting again. 
When the accusation comes, that self-accusation for sins committed, and Satan whispers in our ears, we fall prey to his temptation when we begin to look to ourselves for any reason as to why God should accept us. No, here's where we look. Paul gives it to us in very living color here. Here's where we look. We look to God who justifies. And we look not only to God who justifies, but justifies us in, he says in verse 34, Christ Jesus. And then he enumerates four great works of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is this. He points to Christ's crucifixion. Christ Jesus is the one who died. His crucifixion. He's the one who died for sinners. He's the one who bore the wrath of God. But then he moves on to a second work. Christ's resurrection. More than that, he says, who was raised. Testifying to what? God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. He moves on to a third work. Who is at the right hand of God. What is that? That's his ascension. His exaltation. He has inaugurated his kingdom. He now rules over his people by word and by spirit. And he moves on to a fourth work. His intercession, who indeed, right at the end of verse 34, is interceding for us. Oh, you think of John 17. There's his great intercessory prayer. And you think of how he brings that prayer to a termination. He pray, I pray, Father, for those whom you have given me. Oh, his earnestness in prayer. I pray for those whom you have given me. That they might be where I am. To behold my glory. Do you think the Father's verdict is out? Well, let me think about that one. The Father's answer is resounding what? Yes, that's why I gave them to you. That is the intention here. That is the plan all along. And the Lord Jesus continues that intercessory prayer right now at the right hand of God. His presence, a glorified man, having ascended to the right hand of God, confirming absolutely what? The salvation of all his people. You talk about a golden chain. Here's another golden chain. Here are four unbreakable links. What the Lord Jesus has done for his people. He has died for them. He rose again for them. He was exalted, ascended on high for them. And he now lives forevermore to make intercession for them. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who will condemn? Oh, here's where we run when we're weighed down by the burden of sin. Oh, yeah, next week, just you wait and see what I do. I'm really going to impress God next week. I'll get it together. No, here's where we run when we're weighed down by the burden of sin. We run to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we understand that God justifies us in Christ. And that God accepts me. Wonder of wonders. He accepts me, not because of anything I have ever done. He accepts me because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. He accepts me in Christ. Oh, so many of us need to hear that. 
It speaks to the troubled heart, doesn't it? You've succumbed to that sin again. Get on your knees again and confess it and repent it. Repent it. Oh, but I just repented of it last week. I repented of it the month before that. Yes, I know, I know. And you've heard, you've heard this illustration so many times, and yet we forget it so often. The illustration I give repeatedly, verse, the sheep versus the pig, right? Do you remember that one? Do I need to finish it? The sheep versus the pig. Sheep fall into the mud once in a while, don't they? They might even fall infrequently. But a sheep is not at home there. And as soon as that sheep falls in the mud, what does it want to do? It wants to get out. What does a pig do? A pig goes looking for the mud. There's the difference. Yes, if you go looking for the mud and you live in the muck and the mire, you have no reason to think you're a Christian. You need to repent and believe. But the struggle with the presence of sin, sin still living and active in us and falling into the mud, that is the struggle of every believer. But you know you're a sheep. Why? Because once you're in there, and it might take a little while, you're kicking about in there having a good time, but it might take a little while, but sooner or later you realize, this is not my home. This makes me very uncomfortable. And you want out of there and you confess it. And it may be a month down the road you fall in and again, but you realize this is not my home. And you confess it. And we run where? We run to the Lord Jesus Christ. God justifies us. It is God who justifies us in Christ Jesus. Speaks to the cold heart. Your affections are dead. Maybe not dead. Kind of dormant. I'm just not as happy as I used to be. The joy is gone. If I were a Christian, uh, why, aren't, why aren't I more excited? Why aren't I more, more enthusiastic? Where is the zeal? Where is the joy? What's wrong with me? What's going on here? And then Satan just jumps all over that, doesn't he? The illustration I've often given is that of the plant, Right? Can you watch a plant grow? No. Set up a plant in your home. Sit through it during the night. By the morning, you'll see how much change. None at all. You can only detect a plant's growth after what? Months? Years? It's almost beyond detection, isn't it? Just kind of happens. You turn around and there it is all of a sudden. Yet so many of us, we gauge our spiritual life how? How you're doing today? How you were doing this past week? Even this past month? Even this past year? No, we discern growth over the long haul. The long haul. I have some bushes around the house, and I'll tell you, come wintertime, I give up all hope. They just look pathetic. There's absolutely nothing, no stitch of green, nothing on them, brown. It looks like if you just went over them and just grabbed one of the branches, you just wrench it right out of the ground. No hope for this thing. And then spring comes, warms up a bit. The rain falls. All of a sudden, those buds appear, the leaves, it turns green, and it grows. There you have it. If I were to discern, if I were to look at that plant in January and say, boy, is it healthy? Is it a Christian sticking with the similitude that I'm using here? My answer would be what? No. But I gauge the health of the plant over an extended period of time. Do not fall into that trap of gauging and evaluating your spiritual journey on the last three days. No, it is over the course of time we detect growth, however small. Oh, it speaks to the crushed heart. Maybe you're a people pleaser. You were raised in a home which lacked positive reinforcement. I think it's a good way of saying it. You were raised in a home that lacked positive reinforcement. 
You were raised under a cloud of negativity. And nothing you ever said was good enough. Nothing you ever did was good enough. All right, am I speaking to anyone? You come to the doctrine of justification, you're going to have a hard time buying into it. Why? Because you're wired. How? I must earn it. And I never can. I must please, I must please, I must please, I must earn, I must prove myself. And what has proven true during your your entire existence is that you can't do that. And then we take that, we bring it into the gospel. And so many people, justification is just a a, a perpetual stumbling block. Because they live in this, this tizzy, if you like, of trying to prove themselves to someone to whom we don't need to prove ourselves. But to God, one to whom we simply run in the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrate this glorious truth that it is he who justifies us in Christ. Speaks to a hard heart. You're a little cynical and critical. Let's face it, you're very critical and cynical. You you wear a spam filter. And it filters out all the good stuff and only lets in the negative stuff. And what goes in comes out. The glass is always half empty. Oh, you need to get into this, these verses. You need to get into and revel in. Just bathe yourself with the doctrine of justification and realize how liberating it is, how freeing it is, how joy-inducing it is. It is contagious once understood and wells up and springs up within the soul. There's this great joy and just this great liberation and freedom. Again, it's Bunyan-esque, isn't it? The burden is gone. Knowing that it is God who justifies. Not you, my friend. It is God who justifies. In whom? Christ Jesus. Why? His crucifixion. His resurrection. His exaltation. His intercession. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? I don't don't often use that kind of a question or statement here. Because I'm not very comfortable with it. The other one I'm not very comfortable with is this. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I'm not very comfortable with it because I don't have the foggiest idea what most people mean by it. I, 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 this comes to mind just a couple of weeks ago. I was speaking with someone. Oh, they just, you know, I have this personal relationship with Jesus. And I was, I was baffled. What, what, what does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? You walk down the street holding hands. I, I, don't, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I know Jesus. No, here's the question. Do you know Jesus? This is it. This is what I mean by it. Do you know the one who died for you? Do you? Do you know the one who rose again for you? Do you know the one who ascended on high and took the seat at the right hand of the majesty for you? Do you know the one who intercedes for you? That's what it means to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. It is to have your faith and your hope firmly fixed on him as the only cause of salvation. There is no alteration to God's justice. And then the fourth implication is what? There is no separation from God's love. Out with the question, start of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You see, Satan will come to us. He will tempt us in this regard as well. He will come and he will whisper. And the thought process, is this isn't exact in every case, but this pretty much sums it up. It's something like this. He says, uh, 
Look at your life. Would you just look at your life? Look at the problems you've experienced. Uh, look at what you're going through right now. Now compare that to some other people who seem to have had it pretty easy. All right? And think of, think of the messes you've gone through and <laughs> the messes you're in right now. now. Now let me get this straight. You think God loves you? What? Really? What's the thought process there? What makes you think God loves you given what has happened to you in life? And given the burden you're bearing? Please, let's be reasonable now. Let's be reasonable. Look at your life. And we start thinking how? We start thinking like this. I don't have it as easy as other people. I must have done something wrong. God must be displeased with me. And it just gets lower and lower. I wonder if he really does love me. I can't trust him. Oh, the devil's got you there. He's got you there. That is a temptation that comes in the still of the night to each and every one of us. Paul combats it, confronts it head on here in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And what does he do? Rhymes off all the earthly blessings we can look to to be certain that God looks favorably upon us. What does he do? Oh, he takes us to a horrendous place. Mentions seven marks of adversity. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Wow. I can't help but think Paul's being a little autobiographical there. I don't know what insight he had into the death that was coming for him. But it is interesting that he ends with the word sword. He begins with tribulation. Well, that was his life. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. Ending in sword. A little autobiographical. Shall these things separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? Look at verse 37. No. No. These things don't separate us from the love of Christ. As a matter of fact, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now check that and check it, please. Paul does not say that God will help us escape from these things. He says that God will cause us to triumph in these things. Huge difference. That is paradigm shifting right there. He does not say God will help us to escape these things. God will cause us to triumph victoriously in these things. We will be conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. How did he love us? He still got verses 28 through 30 in view. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And he will certainly glorify us. And until then, he is working all things, no matter the shape, size, form of the adversity. He is working all things together for our good. Here is the expression of his love. And whatever might happen, 
whatever affliction we might experience, there is absolutely nothing that can alter God's expression of love for us as revealed in his sovereign plans and purposes for us. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, the sword cannot break the golden chain. Danger cannot break the golden chain. Nakedness can't break it. Famine can't break it. Persecution can't break it. Go through the list. There is nothing that can alter or change or impede God's expression of love for us. Oh, says one preacher, what about the sword that cuts off your head or pierces your heart? What about the danger that sweeps away your family and leaves you alone? What about the nakedness that shames you in the rape or in the prison yard? What about the famine that leaves you and your bloated children with bones draped in skin? What about the persecution that blocks all your professional advances or burns your house down? What about the distress or calamity it leaves you paraplegic or takes away all your life savings? What about the tribulation that wrings your soul till you wonder if every drop of faith will be squeezed out of it? The answer is no. None of it can possibly separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus as expressed in that promise and as defined in that golden chain of verses 29 through 30. Now, I hope you notice something as I've expounded and explained these verses. Did you notice something? I skipped a verse. Did you catch that? Anybody catch that? I skipped verse 36 and I did for, so for a reason. Very interesting for me that in the, in the past, I don't know, maybe month, at least three of you have come to me saying, boy, I, at least I think it was three of you. It might have been the same person who came on three different occasions, to be honest. I don't remember. But I've heard the question at least three times. What of verse 36? What does that mean? What's going on there? I sure hope you're going to say something about that. And so I do want to focus in on the 36th verse, which is really parenthetical because it doesn't have to be there. Paul asks the question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He then answers it in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure, I am absolutely certain, given verses 28 through 30, absolutely certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why the need for verse 36? Why is it there? Why does he insert it? It is a quote, a citation from Psalm 44. And I want to affirm three reasons why it's here. Three reasons why Paul thinks it's necessary to quote this verse from the psalmist from centuries ago. Here's reason number one. He wants to convince his audience. He wants to convince them of something. Did you got that? He wants to convince them of something. Of what? What's the very last word in verse 35? 
the sword. Hazarding a bit of a guess here. This church hasn't been around very long. These Christians aren't very old in the faith. They haven't really experienced any persecution yet. They're flying under the radar of the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. And things are actually probably going pretty good. All of a sudden, Paul comes out with this list culminating in the word sword. And I'm guessing they might be a bit dubious. Really? A little bit of an alarmist, Paul? I mean, isn't that being a little over the top? Sword, given the life we're living given the life we're enjoying. And so I think Paul is correcting their thinking and he's convincing them of what? He is convincing them of what has been the predominant experience of God's people as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You go all the way back to Abel. Cain murdered Abel. And the history of God's people is soiled with what? The blood of the saints. That there has always been harsh opposition to the people of God, which is really opposition to God himself expressed toward his people. Paul thinks these folks might be a little dubious when he throws out that word sword. And so he's proving it. He's confirming it from scripture itself. Look, this shouldn't shock you. This is the way it has always been. Second reason he inserts it, it builds on the first, is he wants to prepare them. Prepare them for what? Nero. Nero. Emperor. Roman emperor. From Nero, somewhere around late 50s, early 60s AD, all the way to Diocletian, the third century, there are going to be eras of hot persecution directed toward Christians within the Roman Empire. And many of the recipients of this very letter, many of those who read these words for the first time, the actual letter, heard it read publicly, many of them will be martyred for the faith. Paul wants to convince them that this is the way it has been in the past. And in so doing, he wants to prepare them, ready them for what is coming. Thirdly, He wants to assure them of what? Look at the verse, as it is written, for your sake, for God's sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The sword might make us think, might make us assume that God has abandoned us. Paul says, on the contrary, The sword is one of the greatest testimonies to God's love for you and your identity with him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is for Christ's sake. It is for righteousness' sake. Rather than pointing to separation between you and God, it is confirmation of your identity as a child of God. That's why it's there. He wants to convince them. He wants to prepare them. He wants to assure them. Why do we need this verse? It's not very happy clappy, folks, is it? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Not very uplifting. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm not going to be very encouraged over lunch this afternoon. Why do we need to hear this? How could this possibly be of any relevance for us today? Let me make three affirmations. Number one, it will help us to make sense of what's happening in the world. 
ISIS, right? You go to North Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia. What's going on, folks? What is happening in so many parts of the world? We cannot understand the world apart from what Paul says in this verse. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You need to grasp this, brother. You must grasp this, sister. A big picture of things. I know it's difficult, but a big historical picture of things. The history of the church, more or less, give or take a year, 2,000 years now, right? Right? The West. Our familiarity with the West, the United States. We have enjoyed religious liberty for a couple of centuries now. When you put that, what we have enjoyed in a very limited geopolitical sphere, right? The West and the United States in particular. When you put that in the world context of 2,000 years, do you know what we discover? We're living in an anomaly. You better get that, Christian. Please understand that. This religious liberty is not normative. It is not what most, the vast by far, the vast majority of God's people have lived with throughout the centuries, the history of the church. This is an anomaly. We should give thanks for it. We should pray as, as Cody led us in prayer. We pray for those who are in authority over us. That we might be permitted to live tranquil and peaceful lives in the pursuit of God and the pursuit of godliness. We should be thankful for it. We should celebrate it. We should embrace it. We shouldn't feel guilty for it. But at the same time, please take the blinders off and understand the world we live in and understand the history of God's people. It has always been a history of opposition. Secondly, it will help us to stand in the face of opposition. It will help us to stand given what has come down this past week from the Supreme Court. Here's how Carl Truman explains it in a statement. Here is what we are hearing today as Christians. You must, you must embrace an ethic of sexual anarchy. You must, you must embrace an ethic of sexual anarchy bounded only by the principle of consent. In other words, people can do whatever they want as long as it is consensual. You must accept it, not merely tolerate it. You must accept it, you must embrace it, or we will dismiss you as the equivalent of a moral racist. That is the message today. How does this play out? What happens? I'm not from around these parts. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I can speak firsthand Canada. Because Canada, what's happening here is about 20, 30 years behind what has happened historically there. A lot of the fear-mongering that goes on when something like this comes down is not helpful. It's alarmist. No pastors are being arrested in Canada or anything like that. What happens is this. You get shamed out of the public sphere. That's what happens. Faith is privatized. You can still believe this stuff if you want in the privacy of your home and even within the four walls of your church, but don't you dare bring it into the public sphere. That is what happens. And it's shamed out of the public sphere, and we see that progressively. How long will it take if it continues the, the, current, the current trend? I don't know, years, decades, perhaps. God will intervene, there'll be something, I don't know. But th- that is the trend That is the trajectory. Be ready for it. Be ready for the opposition. Be ready for the public shame that will occur. Be ready for the labels that will accompany this. 
and be ready to stand for the gospel and not be ashamed. For it alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And thirdly, why we need this verse? It will help us to live as we ought. Help us to live with, with an important mentality. Here it is expressed by the Lord Jesus in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do we hate our own life? Are we ready to surrender our own lives? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That mindset, that attitude toward life, so essential. Why? Until I'm ready to die to self. And still I'm ready to die my own life. I will never deny my personal rights. What are the chances of that? I will never deny my habitual sins. I will never deny my individual interests and rights. I will never deny or surrender my non-essential comforts. Oh, death to self is so important. Why? It would help us with the easy things. <laughs> Let's just put the difficult part aside for now. Dying to self. That mentality alone, oh, brother, sister, how it would help us put to death sin. How it would help us surrender comforts for the kingdom. How it would help us to think of others more highly than ourselves and put their interests ahead of our own and serve one another. Oh, how it would help us just to do the little things. Oh, it's an essential mentality will help us to live as we ought. Let me repeat those three. Why we need it. It will help us make sense of what is happening in the world. It will help us to stand in the face of opposition. And it will help us to live as we ought. And in the midst of it all, whatever opposition we experience, whatever adversity we encounter, go back to that list enumerated in verse 35. We have this assurance. We have this absolute certainty as Paul himself expresses it in verse 38. I am sure. I am certain. That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This chapter began with what? No condemnation. It ends with what? No separation. It travels, in other words, from justification, right? No condemnation to what? Glorification. No separation. And it speaks directly to our journey from beginning to end at all points in between. Let me repeat this. I made these statements when we began this series in chapter 8. This is the chapter you want when collapsing under the burden of sin. This is the chapter you want when melting in the fire of affliction. This is the chapter you want when bearing the weight of sorrow. This is the chapter you want when expiring upon your deathbed. Why? In summation, this chapter gives you God the Father. I'm speaking to Christians. This chapter gives you God the Father who loved you by choosing you before the foundation of the world. This chapter gives you God the Son who loved you by redeeming you upon Calvary's cross. 
This chapter gives you God the Spirit who loved you by converting you, calling you, regenerating you, drawing you, and making you one with the Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter gives you a great salvation, firmly rooted in a great God. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you might be glorified in your word as has been proclaimed this day. We pray, too, that you might take it and apply it by your spirit, speaking to our hearts. We pray, our Father, that you would work in us by your word. Show us more of your grace in the gospel. Show us more of your love in the Lord Jesus. Increase our joy, increase our hope, and increase our faith. We pray that your word might be made alive to each and every man, woman, boy, girl, gathered in this place this day. We ask it not only for your glory, with the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.